That was definitely an appropriate hymn today for the message that I have for us today, because uh, our joy is complete, because we are saved. But once we are saved, we have a responsibility, and that's what I'll be talking about today. But before I do that, <clears throat> you know that as preachers go to different conferences and and as we attend different churches, we're always listening to what other preachers preach about. And a lot of us carry notebooks and we jot down all these great ideas and sermon outlines. And I got to tell you, the one I've got today, I'm not going to lay claim to it because I actually heard it from a, uh, a Reverend Kevin Jones that was uh, preaching one time. He's a preacher over in Alabama. And it was something about it that just intrigued me. So I have borrowed his outline, or as one preacher, one, I told him that, you know, after a sermon, I said, I really love that sermon. I said, I just might borrow that. And he says, well, if your bullets, if my bullets fit in your gun, feel, feel free to fire them. So I'm going to be firing some of Brother Jones's uh, bullets today. But, um, you know, as you may recall, the first time I came here and I spoke to you, I guess it was last year, I told you that I spent a great deal of my previous career working for a major engineering firm. Uh, we designed bridges, and as part of that, and I was in management, so I hired an awful lot of people. Uh, and I can tell you truthfully that during that time, I never hired a single person for the purpose for the sole purpose of just giving them benefits. I hired them to do a job that would benefit the company. Now, once they were hired and began to work, they did, of course, receive some benefits. They were, were provided health insurance and dental insurance, vision insurance, paid time off, vacation, and all those sorts of things that we always look for in jobs. And in addition to that, of course, each week they received a salary, and that enabled them to, to pay their mortgage, purchase a car, put gas in that car, insure it. And because of those wages, they were able to uh, feed their family, clothe their children. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I hired them to do a job. For those of us who are children of God... There are many benefits. We are provided with salvation, eternal life, and we have a relationship, of course, with the Father. We are adopted into the family of God, and we are joint heirs with Jesus. We have a home in heaven, and we have the opportunity for an abundant life while we are here on earth. These are just a few of the benefits of being a child of God. But God did not save us just so that to keep you and I from hell. That's a definite benefit, wouldn't you say? He did not redeem us simply to give us a home in heaven. Our ultimate purpose for this life is singular, and that is to bring honor and glory to our Heavenly Father. If that is true, and I think you would agree that it is most certainly true, 
then it is safe to say that we were saved to serve. If you look at the life and the ministry of the apostles, it's clear that when Jesus called them that he had a purpose for each and every one of them. They too, of course, received many benefits from following the Savior. But they were called, they were commanded, and they were commissioned to share the gospel for the remainder of their lives. In the text that I've selected today, we find that this was not just the case for the original twelve. It is the case of everyone who is in Christ. Today I'd like to look at the first four verses of Paul's epistle to Titus. And we can see in those first four verses that we are saved to serve. And in this, in a careful examination of the passage, I'm going to get you three points. Here's my outline for you, like I always give you. First, we're going to see that Paul himself was most clearly saved to serve. And we'll look at some of the ways that he did that. Then we're going to look at the fact that Titus was saved to serve. And then lastly, we're going to take a look at the fact that you were saved to serve. So read with me Titus chapter 1. Verses 1 through 4. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior, to Titus, my true child in common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Join with me, please, as we pray. Father God, we do give you thanks for this time that you have given us to gather together. And we thank you, Father, for the benefits that you have given us through our salvation, through our Lord and Savior. But, Father, I would ask that we all understand and see that true greatness consists not in where, we, where one sits, but in how one serves. And as we go through our day and our week, and the time that, you give them, that you've given to us, I pray that we will look for opportunities that we might truly be your servant. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So let's begin here by first of all looking at uh, verse 1. And we're going to see in this, this passage, and I'm going to look in verse 1 by breaking it up into little bitty segments here. But we're going to see how Paul was saved to serve. You know, in the church's early days, in the infancy of the church here, there was not many people that were as feared as they were of one Saul of Tarsus. He was a devout Jew. He was a rabbi that studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was a self-described Pharisee of Pharisees. He spent his days persecuting 
Christians and seeking the complete destruction of his church. When Stephen was stoned to death, Saul was there, we're told, consenting unto his death. And the people stoning Stephen even laid their cloaks at the feet of Saul of Tarsus. But what Saul of Tarsus did not know was that God had chosen him for a specific task. He would soon become one of the greatest leaders and missionaries in the very church that he sought to destroy. So, let's look first at Paul's calling. In the very first phrase of the passage we read, we read, Paul, a servant of God. You see, he refers to himself as a servant. Now, it's interesting here. Here he uses a Greek word, and that Greek word is, of course, he's writing in Greek. Why wouldn't he be using a Greek word? But this Greek word here is doulos. I'm sure you've run across it before in your Sunday school lessons. But this word doulos has a meaning. It can mean servant, but it carries most of the time the concept of being a slave. Paul is stating here that, in essence, his life was no longer his own. He belonged to God and to his Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, how did this happen? What brought about such a tremendous transformation in Saul of Tarsus? Well, you recall back in Acts chapter 9, this great persecutor had an encounter with his Savior. Saul was headed to Damascus with the intention of arresting Christians and then bringing bringing them back to Jerusalem in chains for the sole purpose of persecuting them in some fashion. There on the Damascus road, and I'm not going to go into that detail because I know you're very familiar with it, Jesus appeared to Saul, and in that appearance changed Saul's life forever. Why did Jesus confront Saul? Was it just to give the churches there in that area some rest from the persecution that Saul was about to enact? Well, it did do that to some degree, I'm sure. But in Acts chapter 9 and verse 15, we read where Jesus tells Ananias, you remember old Ananias? Now, I always thought this Ananias was a man of faith. You know, God says, Ananias, I want you to go see Saul. And by the way, he says, because he's praying. And I've often thought about Ananias. What? You want me to go do what with who? You know, this man's coming to kill us. But Ananias went in faith. But anyway, the Lord told Ananias why. Because he said, Saul is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Do you see that? So we see that Saul, who is going to be named Paul, was chosen to bear witness. He was saved to serve. And serve he did. In fact, millions of people all over the world are still benefiting from the service of Paul. 
after he was called, he spent the remainder of his entire life, I would venture to say every waking day, serving his Lord and Savior. So let's look for just a moment here at Paul's service that I've referred to in his ministry. In the second little section of verse 1, he referred to himself as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Well, let's get another little Greek lesson here. That apostle comes from the Greek word apostolos. That's the root. And it really means one who is sent to speak far. So it's not just a messenger. It is almost like an ambassador, one who speaks for for who sent him. Now you recall that Jesus chose 12 men and and entrusted those 12 men with the organization of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. We know, of course, that Judas betrayed Christ. We know he committed suicide. We also know in chapter 1 of Acts that a replacement was sectioned. Any of you remember his name? His name doesn't surprise me, by the way. His name was Matthias. He was chosen by lots. This is the only place we ever hear Matthias' name mentioned again. But he was chosen as an apostle. Now, there's nothing in Scripture about Matthias. We do, there is some um, non-biblical sources as to his ministry and eventual death, but there's nothing in Scripture. Some even go so far to say, well, was Matthias truly an apostle? Well, Scripture tells me he was, and I've developed this habit is I don't, I don't argue with Scripture. So if, if they say he was an apostle, he's an apostle. Now, the reason that some want to take that position is they want to say that Paul was truly the 12th apostle. Well, I personally don't agree with that. He was the 13th apostle. The issue isn't where he falls in the number of apostles. The issue here is he was an apostle. He was called by God. He was given God's message. He was an apostle. Now in 1 Corinthians 5, 15, 18, Paul says that he was one untimely born, talking about his call as an apostle. This means that Well, I was selected by an apostle at a different time and in a different way than the others were, and that most assuredly is true. Because after he was called, Paul traveled for the remainder of his life preaching the gospel to the churches that he tried to destroy. Have you ever thought for a moment about the expanse of Paul's ministry? Let me run down to some of the places that he traveled sharing the gospel. Arabia, Damascus, Jerusalem, Tarsus, Antioch, Seleucia, Cyprus, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, Syria, Macedonia, Troas, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus, Galatia, Greece, Tyre, Caesarea, Rome, and possibly Gaul. I say possibly because there are conflicting theories about if if there was a second release from prison. 
But my point is, he was called to spread the gospel. What did he do? He spread the gospel wherever he went. He went to these areas preaching the gospel. He established new churches. In some cases, he strengthened existing churches. Innumerable souls came to Christ because of his ministry, and many others matured in the faith as well. But Paul didn't just preach. He also suffered. He was constantly arrested, imprisoned. He was beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, and eventually, of course, gave his life for the cause of Christ. He faced all of these hardships willingly. Why? Because he knew he was saved. He was saved to serve. Now, Paul's ministry was much more than an obligation to him, of course. It was his passion. Notice Paul's desire when you read all of the epistles that he wrote. This is a man who was concerned about the spiritual condition of every single person that he encountered. Now we see that a little bit later in verse 1 where Paul desired to see lost people saved because we see in that that kind of middle section of verse 1 for the sake of the faith of God's elect. The fact that Paul desired to see lost people saved is evident in so many of the passages we could cite. If we were to go to Romans 10:1, he writes, "Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved." 1 Corinthians 10:30 uh, yeah, 10:33 says, "Just as I try to please everyone in everything, I do not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. In Romans 9, Paul states that he would be willing to be forever cut off from Christ if that would bring salvation to his, brother, to his Jewish brothers and sisters. The fact that he spent his life telling people how and why they could be saved proves his desire to see lost men and women coming to know Jesus. Not only did the apostle desire to see lost people saved, he desired to see saved people becoming more mature. Toward the end of verse 1, you notice he writes, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. Saving faith moves us all to the full knowledge of the truth. This results in the new life of godliness. Christians are to live sanctified, holy, pure, righteous, and godly lives. When the truth of the gospel impacts us, others see Christ in and through us. Paul desired to see the new converts mature in the faith. His epistles teach us how to live in Christ. He not only planted new churches, but he longed to revisit those churches to help them strength, uh, help them grow, to strengthen them in their faith, 
This was his very heart's desire. And then though you say, well, what is the assurance that Paul has? Now, why is he so confident? Well, in verses 2 and 3, we see Paul's assurance. He says, in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, and at the proper time manifested in his word through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God our Savior. Paul states here that we can be confident and we can be secure in Christ. How is this possible? It's possible through God's promises. God cannot lie. If he says it, that settles it. Paul even proclaims that the promise of eternal life was given before the world began, before it even existed. He was confident in God's promises. He found assurances in God's word. The message that Paul shared was God's. It was not his own. Therefore, those who Paul ministered to could have the same security in God's promises as we can have the same assurances as well. It's evident when you look at Paul's calling at his ministry and the desire that he was saved, but he was saved to serve. It is also evident in this passage that Titus was saved to serve. In fact, Paul's story and Titus's were intertwined. It seems that Titus was possibly converted as a result of Paul's ministry. Notice here, he says, To Titus, my true child in the common faith. Excuse me. I'm so glad you brought this. So here Paul introduces us in this part of his letter to the recipient of the letter. His fellow laborer, a person by the name of Titus. Titus was a non-Jewish convert to the Christianity. And Titus was one of those guys that we used to call in the business world as a troubleshooter. You know, if you ever had an office or an issue dealing with problems, you'd send in this guy to straighten out the problem. Well, we'll see in verse 5 that Paul instructed Titus, though we didn't go to verse 5 today, if we read down to 5, we'll see where Paul instructed Titus to set things in order in the local church. Titus was also instrumental in correcting the errors of the Corinthian church. And man, if ever there was a church that needed to be straightened out, it was the Corinthian church. And it is evidence that Paul had great confidence in him to get these things done. Here in verse 4, Paul calls Titus, my true child in a common faith. Paul uses this same expression, by the way, for Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 2. We don't have the details, but somewhere according to 
or sometime in the past, Paul introduced Titus to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. Titus met Jesus and everything changed for Titus, just like everything changed for Paul. Titus was transformed by Jesus. In the second half of verse 4, we say, in the common faith. These two men shared a common faith. Their experiences were the same. Now, they had different backgrounds. Titus most certainly wasn't the great persecutor of Christians that Paul was, but he was saved in exactly the same way as Paul was. He was transformed by the saving power of the Savior. Titus soon realized after coming to faith in Jesus that he too had been saved to serve. He was not, his was not simply faith in word only, but in deed and in action. It's also apparent that Titus surrendered to Jesus. Because Paul writes, grace and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Savior. Surrendering to Jesus is more than just a prayer of faith. It is a complete submission to the will of God. Titus surrendered himself completely to Jesus Christ. In some translations, and I don't know, yours might have this, Paul uses the phrase, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus was Titus's Lord, his ruler, his master, and Jesus was the supreme authority in his life, and he was dedicated to serving the Lord. Paul says, I am a slave. In other words, Titus says, I am a subject under the Lord. Titus was with Paul and Barnabas at Antioch. He was influential in reaching Gentiles with the gospel. He was also with Paul and Timothy at Ephesus. And Paul sent him to minister at Corinth for a time. At this point in his ministry, Paul was instrumental in the organization of a church at Crete. That's where Paul is when, when uh, I mean, it's where... Uh, Titus is when Paul sends him this letter. Paul left him there to set things in order. He he spent his life sharing the good news to lost men and women and helping new converts, just like Paul. Titus was truly saved to serve. Paul and Titus was very different. They were very different men. They were from different backgrounds, but they both came to Jesus in the same way for the same purpose. And if you are born again, you are saved the same way that they were. And if you were saved, you have an obligation to serve the Lord. I would like to conclude by examining this fact. You were saved to serve. Adrian Rogers used to say that many church members come down the aisle of the church, get baptized, then come Sunday after Sunday and just sit soaking sour. 
God did not call you to sit, soak, and sour. God called you to serve. Like Paul and Titus, you are called to be a disciple. In Luke 14, if you recall, there was a large crowd that had begun following Jesus. As he addressed the crowd, he revealed the requirements for being a disciple. There were many people following Jesus at that time, but many were following him for the wrong reasons. Like we talked about last week, some wanted to see the miracle. Some desired for a healing of their own. Some hoped that Jesus would overthrow the Romans and establish God's kingdom. But as Jesus preached in this one passage in Luke, the crowd and the number of the followers began to diminish. The numbers started to drop off. What was the message that caused that to happen? Well, listen to what Jesus said in Luke 14, 26. He said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. That's a difficult passage, so you have to understand what he's saying here. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. He is saying in this passage that I must be number one. We get hung up on those words hate, but he's saying that nothing in our lives can replace our allegiance and dedication and service to our Lord. Three times in the context of the message here in Luke 14, Jesus used the phrase, cannot be my disciple. In other words, Jesus was laying out some absolute requirements for discipleship. Yes, God wants you to be delivered from your sins. Yes, God wants to rescue you from the torments of hell. Yes, God wants you to have a personal relationship with Him. Yes, God wants you to spend eternity with Him in heaven. But ultimately, God wants you to be a disciple of Christ. If you are saved, you are saved to serve. Not only are you called to be a disciple, but you are also called to make disciples. Consider the Great Commission, which we're all familiar with for just a moment, in Matthew 28. <clears throat> he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Actually, in this verse, he says, Make disciples twice. Because the phrase teaching them literally means make disciples. This involves more than just sharing the gospel. It is not simply making converts. I ran across here a, a, a little article in a magazine called Relevant Magazine talking about the difference between converts and disciples. Converts are believers who live like the world. Disciples are believers who live like Jesus. Converts are focused on their values, interests, worries, fears, priorities, and lifestyles. 
disciples are focused on Jesus. Converts go to church. Disciples are the church. Converts are involved in the mission of Jesus. Disciples are committed to it. Converts cheer from the sidelines. Disciples are in the game. Converts hear the word of God. Disciples live it. Converts follow the rules. Disciples follow Jesus. Converts are all about believing. Disciples are all about being. Converts are comfortable. Disciples make sacrifices. Converts talk. Disciples make disciples. Making disciples speaks of teaching, training, and investing in others. The Christian life can be summed up in the phrase, be a disciple who makes disciples. What about you? Are you doing your part? Are you making disciples? We often use the term inactive church members to describe those who have quit attending churches. Or sometimes we'll use that phrase, those who attend, but they're simply filling a spot in the pew. But there's no such thing truly as an inactive church member. You're either building up the church or you're tearing it down. Can you imagine how much could be done if we had more faithful servants? Are you faithful to the kingdom work? If you have a position in the church, are you devoted to it? Can others depend on you to carry out your responsibilities faithfully? If you neglect your responsibilities, you're not only letting the church down, you're not only letting your brothers and sisters in Christ down, you're saying to your Lord that serving Him is not as important as whatever it is that's keeping you from fulfilling your responsibilities. If you really believe that, then you must acknowledge the fact that if you're not serving, then you're probably backslidden or perhaps not saved. You're either obeying the command of Christ or you're living in open rebellion. Paul was saved to serve. Titus was saved to serve. You are saved to serve. If you're not saved... You can be today. Surrender your heart and your life to Jesus. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow Him. When you do, you too will find out that you are saved to serve. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you so much for this time we have had together this morning. And I just pray that each of us would recognize the opportunities that you consistently and constantly present to each and every one of us to serve you. And I pray that we would approach each day with the apprehension and the joy of that which you have in store for us to bring honor and glory to your name. And Father, if perchance there are some here today that have not made that decision 
accepting Christ as Savior, I just pray that they would do so today. It's all in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you have made that decision or if you have any questions about anything I've said today, I'll be sticking around for a little while and we can talk about that. Well, thank you very much.